Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Tobacco and excessive alcohol use are among the top preventable causes of death in the United States. Brief discussions with behavioral health providers about modifying heavy drinking and tobacco use can help patients make important changes in these areas. Behavioral health providers are increasingly embedded into primary care clinics where patients have more ready access to these professionals. However, behavioral health providers don't commonly report engaging in brief interventions for tobacco and alcohol use with their patients. In this study, the authors surveyed behavioral health providers working in primary care settings and asked them about the barriers to implementing brief tobacco and alcohol interventions. They also asked what would aid them in talking to patients more regularly about alcohol and tobacco use. 285 behavioral health providers, primarily psychologists and clinical social workers, participated in the anonymous survey. Respondents reported that their primary barrier was their belief that patients do not want to discuss or change these behaviors. Providers also said that if patients were to identify quitting or cutting down as a treatment goal or received referrals specifically for tobacco or alcohol use, they would be more likely to deliver treatments for these concerns. They reported that a positive relationship with their patient would help facilitate delivery of these interventions. The authors recommend that professionals consider strategies that would increase the likelihood that behavioral health providers would more routinely discuss ways to modify tobacco and risky alcohol use among primary care patients engaged in these behaviors. This research was supported by the VA Center for Integrated Healthcare Pilot Grant Program and the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Academic Affiliations Advanced Fellowship Program in Mental Illness Research and Treatment. Alcohol-related seizures are acute symptomatic seizures most frequently associated with alcohol withdrawal. However, little is known about the characteristics of patients with this phenomenon. The objective of this study was to evaluate the clinical features and personality traits of this subgroup of patients. A total of 144 alcohol-dependent patients were recruited from the Alcoholism Unit of the Psychiatric Service of Santa Maria University Hospital in Lisbon, Portugal, and divided into two subgroups. Alcohol-dependent patients reporting alcohol-related seizures and alcohol-dependent patients with no history of alcohol-related seizures. The alcohol-dependent patients reporting alcohol-related seizures significantly started to abuse and depend on alcohol at an earlier age and had more alcohol detoxification episodes, a higher degree of alcohol-dependent severity, and more frequent family history of alcoholism. Regarding personality traits, these patients had significantly lower levels of openness to experience. According to the authors, the results indicate that patients with alcohol-related seizures are a specific subgroup of alcohol-dependent patients. Personality traits should be determined 
before alcohol detoxification admission as part of an alcohol-related seizure's risk stratification strategy, and personality traits should be considered when refining treatment programs. Abnormalities in vital signs, especially blood pressure, are commonly seen in patients detoxifying from alcohol. The degree of these derangements is often dependent on various factors, including genetics and extent of drinking. Guidance on how best to manage hypertension, hypertensive urgency, and hypertensive emergency in patients withdrawing from alcohol is lacking. In this issue's continuing medical education offering, the authors provide a review of relevant articles to start the discussion about this important topic. Despite lack of specific guidance, what is clear is that every effort should be made to control blood pressure during the withdrawal period. Benzodiazepines and clonidine are helpful in the management of hypertension in patients detoxifying from alcohol. Hypertension is typically self-limited in alcohol withdrawal syndrome. However, patients with underlying treatment-resistant hypertension may have more difficult to control blood pressure especially in the first 24 hours of withdrawal. Post-withdrawal, a fraction of patients will continue to have elevated blood pressure that may or may not be related to alcohol use. These patients are encouraged to follow up with their outpatient primary care doctor. For those who continue to drink, abstinence from alcohol can lead to improved blood pressure as well as an overall better quality of life. Religion is said to play a strong role in the attitude toward health and disease in Arab and Muslim countries. However, to what extent this is also true of Arabs and Muslims living in the United States is unknown. The purpose of this pilot study was to determine the influence of religious beliefs on the attitudes of Arab American Muslims toward mental illness, especially depression. This study was conducted at the Islamic Center of America in Dearborn, Michigan, as part of the Movement for Outreach, Volunteerism, and Education Psychoeducation Seminars. A modified version of the Depression Awareness Questionnaire was handed out to participants who attended the seminars. Seventy-five respondents completed the questionnaire. Although 64 respondents believed that depression is a medical illness and 59 believed that depressed patients will get better with treatment, 24 believed that antidepressant medications will lead to addiction. Also, 26 respondents reported that black magic or evil eye could cause depression, and 28 believed that being close to God prevents depression. The authors conclude that although this group of Arab-American Muslims understood the gravity of depression and the importance of treatment, their religious beliefs played a strong role in their approach to mental health. Obesity is particularly problematic among patients with severe mental illness such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and is associated with serious medical consequences including dyslipidemia, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. However, although weight gain is a frequent issue in patients with mental disorders, it is usually neglected in their treatment plans. To update the current status of the evidence regarding the pharmacological treatment of weight gain and severe mental illness, the authors performed a systematic review and meta-analysis. 
a total of 52 randomized controlled trials evaluating 20 different pharmacologic agents were included in the review. The anti-diabetic agent metformin was the most studied compound, followed by the anticonvulsant topiramate. Some other agents were evaluated in a small number of studies. Metformin showed significant results in 10 out of 12 included studies, followed by topiramate. The authors maintain that this review provides additional evidence to support a potential role for metformin and topiramate in the management of weight gain in patients with severe mental illness. Restraints are commonly used in emergency departments, psychiatric inpatient facilities, and crisis centers to ensure the safety of the patient as well as the staff. While use of physical restraints is imperative for proper patient management in certain settings, it is equally important to acknowledge concerns regarding the legal, ethical, and psychiatric impact such use has on patients. The objective of this study was to determine associations between the rate of restraints and demographic variables, such as BMI, ethnicity, gender, and age, along with clinical variables, such as various psychiatric diagnoses and medications. This six-month retrospective chart review was conducted in the emergency department of a community hospital. A total of 165 agitated patients were included in the study. Agitated patients who were restrained were compared to those who were not physically restrained. 68% of the patients in the sample were physically restrained. Younger age, lower BMI, intoxication, pre-existing diagnosis of depression, and antipsychotics as a home medication were associated with physical restraints. In the emergency department, administration of haloperidol and nolanzapine were associated with physical restraints. Current benzodiazepine prescription and emergency department administration of ketamine or diazepam were more common in those not physically restrained. Risk factors for physical restraints can be used to identify high-risk patients early, and other treatments, along with behavioral and environmental modifications, may then be utilized. The authors maintain that further research to develop protocols using non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic measures to minimize use of restraints is required. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.